I love it. Well, hey, uh, if you are new here to Cross Point, number one, again, welcome. But about 11 weeks ago, we're actually in week 11 today, we started a series on the book of Genesis. It's going to take us about a year. And so today we're going to head back to Genesis 12 together. So if you have a Bible, you can grab it and go there with me. Genesis chapter 12. Well, James, the brother of Jesus, who was also the pastor in the early Jerusalem church, he once wrote this in a little book in your Bible called James, really creative title, right? James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, Now, I'm really curious, have you ever had some well-meaning person quote the first part of that verse to you during a season of trial or hardship? You ever had that, like they saw it on a Christian t-shirt or a coffee cup, and they decided to drop it on you as a form of grief counseling, count it all joy, my brothers, right? You ever experienced that? If so, you know like I know how frustrating that can be. In fact, in certain life situations, those feel like fighting words. And so what in the world would compel James to write them? Well, the answer becomes very clear in the verses that appear after the count it all joy verse. You see, when you pay close attention to that text, what you discover is this. James was not writing there and saying that when life gets difficult, we should put a smile on and pretend like everything's okay. It is okay to admit that you are not okay. And in fact, when life is hard, until you do that, you will never get the help you need from God or anybody else. But neither is James suggesting that you should rejoice in the pain you feel during hard or difficult seasons or moments. Right again, it's okay to hurt and it's okay to grieve and it's okay to be angry and to be honest about what you're feeling. Instead, what James is teaching is simply this, that while every single person in this room will experience trials at times, uh, sometimes due to the brokenness of our world that has resulted from sin, At other times, due to the fact that we have a very real enemy, Satan, who is always coming after us and attacking us, James is teaching that sometimes God himself will allow certain trials to enter our lives in order to test our faith. And what we can rejoice in is not the tests themselves, but in the spiritual growth and progress that results from them. This makes a whole lot of sense when you think about the purpose of a test, right? Uh, I've shared with you before, I'm a CrossFit guy. Well, every year, our CrossFit community takes a test of fitness called the Open. Okay, over the course of five weeks, we do five different workouts, and then you go online and you input all your scores, and you can actually see where you rank against every other person in your age bracket that does CrossFit across the entire world. It's pretty fascinating. But that test, it reveals a couple of things. Number one, your strengths, what you're good at. But number two, and probably more importantly, it exposes your weaknesses. Here's what you stink at. And so you're able to walk away from that test with greater knowledge and a greater understanding of how you need to grow and get better. Look, that is why God tests our faith. He does so, number one, to show us where we're spiritually strong. But more importantly, number two, to expose where we are spiritually weak so that by the Holy Spirit, he can go to work in our lives and grow us more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And listen, that's exactly what we see God doing for a man in our text for today called Abram. If you missed last Sunday, we came to a turning point or a hinge point in the book. 
Uh, in the first nine weeks, we covered the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which comprised the first major section. That section covers about 2,000 years of history. It tells the beginnings of the universe and the human race, and it includes four major events, creation, the fall, the flood, and the forming of nations. Last week, we started in on section number two, chapters 12 through 50. This chapter that we're currently in, it covers about 300 years of history. It tells the beginnings of the nation of Israel, God's chosen race, and it covers four important people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, as we learned last Sunday, this chosen race of people that would belong to God, they started, it started, that nation started with some incredible promises that God made to a pagan man. Do you remember this? If you were here, he, he comes to Abram. He's later going to become Abraham in our series, but for now, he's just pagan Abram. He comes to Abram, and he says to him, hey, I want you to go. Like, don't worry about where you're going. Just pack your life up and leave everything. Leave behind your country and your family and your citizenship, and I want you to go to this land that I'm going to show you, and don't worry about it. Like, I'll just let you know when you've gotten there. The promises that God made Abraham were these. Hey, if you go, I'll make your name great. I'll make a great nation out of you. I will bless you. Anybody who blesses you, I'll bless. Anybody who dishonors you, I'll curse. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was a promise that looked forward to Jesus. Jesus who would eventually come into the world through Abram's line. Now, what I find so fascinating is that Abram actually did it. I mean, can you imagine that? I know a lot of times, especially if you've grown up in church, it's easy to read the Bible like you read the newspaper. You know, just read these stories and you take them for granted and you don't really think about their significance. Think about that. Imagine God comes to you and says, hey, pack it up and go. And don't worry about where you're going. Just start moving and trust me to show you where you're going to land when you get there. Can we have a moment of honesty? Most of us in the room wouldn't do that, would we? If God came to us and said, leave, we would go, okay, God, I'd love to, but I need some more details. Uh, God, give me the exact address so that I can plug it into my Waze app and get my directions and plan out all my stops along the way. And, you know, God, what about a house? Is there going to be a house because I don't want to be homeless? And, you know, I'm going to need a job because I have to eat. And, God, I have kids. You know this because you gave them to me. And how are the schools? Because they need a good education. And, God, can we talk about the weather? Because, you know, I don't like it too hot or too cold. And I don't like all the seasons. And, God, if you want me to go, I just need to know what the deal is. Help me here. Look, that's what intrigues me so much about Abram. When you compare him to all the other people in the Bible, you start to discover, look, that he knew the least about God, yet he was willing to risk the most for God. He doesn't ask for a single detail. He just packs up his stuff and he leaves. And I would love to tell you that when he got to the land God was giving him, that he unpacked and he settled in and he and his family just lived happily ever after, but that's not what happened. You see, immediately upon arriving, Abram's faith was tested. And as we're going to see in the next several weeks, his faith was tested over and over and over and over again. And while the biblical writers rightly celebrate Abram as a man of great faith who passed many of his tests, when it comes to the two tests we're going to look at today, he failed miserably. And what we learn from his failure is simply this. This is the big idea of the message. So if you're taking notes, you might want to jot this down. We learn that the surest way to fail a test of faith is by placing faith in self over God. That the surest way to fail a test of faith is by placing faith in self 
over God. Now, before we dive into the text and unpack that, I just want to stop for a moment and clarify what I mean when I say faith. Because when you study faith in the Bible, you start to see that faith is different than what most people think it is. All right, so for example, faith is not hopeful, wishful thinking. Oh, I hope things get better. Hope my situation turns around. Hope I get that job I want. Hope I get into that college I applied for. That's not faith. But neither is faith blind optimism. I'm just going to believe the best in spite of not knowing what the future holds. No, biblical faith is this. It's when you and I have a confidence that God is who he says he is and that he'll do everything he's promised to do. And so when we apply that definition of faith to the big idea of the message, we could actually say it like this, that the surest way to fail a test of faith is by placing confidence in self over the character and promises of God. With that simple clarification in mind, let's dive in and get to work. Y'all ready? 11.45, you out there? You away? You ready? Okay. Here we go. Genesis 12, starting in verse 10. Here's what the Bible says. Now, there was a famine in the land. What land are we talking about here? Come on, somebody help me. The promised land, right? The land of Canaan. The land that God sent Abraham to. The land he just traveled some 800 miles to get to. There's a famine in that land. And so Abram goes down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And so here we see test number one. Test number one was a famine. I mean, think about this with me. Put yourself in Abram's shoes for just a moment. He left behind the land of Haran where he was living, packs up his life, and he just starts moving. He travels some 800 miles on foot all the way to the land of Canaan. He gets there, and God says, great news, this is it. And then Abram stops, and he looks around, and he realizes, God, there are people living in this land. We saw that in last week's passage. But then in addition, he realizes, there's no food here. Yet instead of stopping in that moment and remembering in faith, but hold on, hold on, hold on. God, you made me a promise. (laughs) You promised me that if I went, you'd bless me, and you'd make my name great, and you'd make a great nation out of me. And so, God, here I am. You told me you were going to give me this land. Surely, if you're going to keep that promise, you didn't bring me out here to starve me to death. And so, God, we're staying, we're going to settle in, and we're going to trust you to feed us. Instead of remaining confident in God in that way, Abram did what probably seemed most natural in the moment to do. He packed his stuff up again, and he left the land of promise, and he went to Egypt, where food was often abundant because of the Nile River system. And come on, I I know, I'll recognize this, and let's all be honest, we know this. Look, on a surface level, that doesn't seem like a big deal, does it? Okay, who wouldn't go where the food is, right? But his actions reveal a common mistake, a big mistake that we often make when our faith is tested, and that mistake is this, we simply forget God. We forget God. God. So in other words, look, life gets difficult, and instead of remembering the character of God and the promises of God, we start to take life into our own hands, and we attempt to change our circumstances on our own without his help. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Like anybody ever been in that place where instead of looking to God in faith and going, God, here's my life, here's my circumstances, do what only you can do, that all of a sudden you're looking at life and going, wow, I'm in control of everything. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Right, it should because we're all guilty, aren't we? 
myself included, and I'll give you an example of this, all right? Years ago, and I've shared this story before, but years ago, I traveled to Manaus, Brazil, right on the Amazon River. I was getting ready to take a bunch of high school kids from the church I was at, uh, the, uh, serving as a youth pastor at the time. We were going on a mission trip over spring break. And so I went about six to eight months early just to scout it all out. And so I'm there with a missionary, and he says to me one day, James, we're going to get up, and we're going to go down to the Amazon. We're getting on a riverboat, and we're going to go explore potential ministry sites. And so I thought, awesome, this is going to be fantastic. So we get in a car, drive down to the river. We get out, and I immediately notice there's no boat. And so I ask the question anyone would ask in a moment like that, hey, where's the boat we're getting on? And the missionary says back to me, oh, uh, well, we don't have a boat. We were just going to come and wait by the river and hope that someone with a boat would show up and take us where we need to go. Now, look, I'll tell you, being the very type A guy that I am, immediately in that moment, I was annoyed. You know, like, you you didn't plan a boat. Like, bro, what are you doing? Like, why? You said we're getting on a boat. Why didn't you schedule a boat? And so we're just standing there by the river. There's no boat in sight. The time is just ticking by. And finally, this missionary looks at us and he says, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we pray and ask God to send a boat? Now, can I be honest with you? You're not going to judge me, are you? Like, can I, can I bear my soul for a moment? Listen, as soon as those words came out of his mouth, I immediately thought, that's a stupid idea. Why are we going to pray for a boat? You should have scheduled a boat. And dude, there's a cell phone on your hip. Like call some. We don't need to talk to God about this. You need to call the boat guy, right? And so obviously I didn't say any of that out loud because I'm a pastor and I got to be spiritual in those moments, you know. So of course I agreed. Yes, we need to pray. Praise the Lord. And so we circle up and we grab hands and we start praying. Um, actually, they start praying. I wasn't praying. Like I was still convinced this is pointless, Well, wouldn't you know it, less than two minutes after we said amen, guess what showed up? A stinking boat. Like, God rebuked me (laughs) right on the side of the Amazon River. I kid you not. Now, look, I, I share that experience to say this. My experience in Brazil perfectly illustrates the default of the human heart. You see, oftentimes when life gets difficult, our reflex is to turn inward instead of upward. Right? We forget about God. And we take life into our own hands and we start trying to change things apart from him. And can I tell you what we declare when we do so? Our actions and attitude literally say that we are more confident in self than we are in him to overcome what we're facing. And that's what Abram did when he went to Egypt. He simply forgot God. But that's not where his failure stopped. Look at verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a beautiful woman in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So in these verses, we find test number two. Test number two was the fear of death. Again, I, I want you to just imagine this scene, okay? Abraham is, uh, or Abram, who he still was in this case, he packs up his life yet again. 
and he goes all the way to Egypt from Canaan. He's coming up on the border of this country. He's about to enter in, but he stops the caravan. And he turns and he looks to Sarai, his wife, and he says to her, Babe, I don't know if I've told you lately, but you could be on the cover of a magazine. Like, seriously, girl, like, you got to know you are incredibly beautiful. So beautiful, in fact, that I'm afraid when the Egyptians find out that you're my wife, they're going to kill me and keep you. Yet, instead of stopping in that moment and remembering yet again in faith, but wait, I have a promise God has promised to bless me and to use me to father a nation of people. And I can't really father a nation of people if I'm dead. And so regardless of what happens while we're here, if God's going to make good on that promise, he has to make sure that we make it out alive. Instead of remaining confident in God in that way, Abram turns and he says, "Uh, Babe, I have come up with what I think is a fantastic plan to keep us alive while we're here. Let's just say you're my sister. Now, I know to many of us in the room, that probably sounds kind of weird and even disturbing, but it's important for you to know it was actually true. All right, we learn in Genesis chapter 20 that Sarai was Abram's half-sister. They had the same dad, different moms, and that's all I'm going to say about that today, all right? Uh, We can talk more about that when we actually get to Genesis chapter 20. But what Abram was suggesting in the moment was simply this. Hey, babe, let's only tell half the truth. We don't need to tell the whole truth. Let's just tell half of it. They don't need to know that you're my wife and my sister. They only need to know that you're my sister. Now, can I tell you the problem with that? And you know this because you're smart people, but here's the problem. A half-truth is still a whole lie, right? I mean, as people, we can attempt to deceive our way out of difficulty by only sharing some of the facts, but that doesn't make us clever. It makes us liars. I've been trying to teach this to my oldest daughter, Rowan, recently. She's seven. And Rowan is an older sister, and like all good older sisters, she constantly terrorizes her younger sister, Selah, who's only three. Uh, They'll take baths together, and Rowan will pour water over Selah's head, which Selah absolutely hates. She cannot stand water being on her face. Uh, Rowan will draw on her sister with markers. Just this past week, she kicked her sister off the bed. Not like, hey, get out of my bed, but physically put her feet on her and kicked her off the bed into the floor. Now, I'll confront her about these things, and she's usually pretty quick to confess, like, okay, yes, daddy, I did it. But then she follows up her confession with this statement, but it was an accident. (laughs) Yeah, well, you just told me half the truth, girl. Like, the first part was true, but the second part was a lie. And because you lied about the second part, you just lied about the whole thing. You see, that's the problem with telling half the truth. A half truth is always a whole lie, which means, would you look up here? Which means Abram lied. He lied, but his reason for lying was very logical and very practical. You see, in his culture, if there were no fathers present in the mix, brothers assumed legal guardianship over their sisters. And so in this case, going into Egypt, if any man wanted to take Sarai as his wife, he would have to negotiate terms with Abram. And so in his mind, he's probably thinking, hey, this lie is going to buy us the necessary time we need to get food and to get out of here before anything happens to us. It sounds like a pretty ingenious plan, doesn't it? But again, here's the problem. His actions reveal a second big mistake that we often make as people when our faith is tested. And the second mistake is this. We help God. We help God. So in other words... 
instead of remaining confident in the character of God and the promises of God, we devise and we scheme and we work really hard to help God out with what he's promised us he would do. And again, when you examine Abram's motivation for his deception, you see that this is exactly what he was going for, trying to help God here. I mean, he says to Sarai, his wife, again, don't miss this, hey, let's just say you're my sister, that it may go well for me and that my life might be spared for your sake. So hey, babe, by lion, we can keep me alive and we can stay married. And I have to imagine Abram's thinking in this moment, that's going to help God out so much. I mean, he told me that he's going to make me the father of a great nation, but how can I father a nation if I'm dead or we're not married? And so, I mean, this lie is actually going to assist God in what he's promised us he would do. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Yet, can we confess and be honest? We're all guilty, aren't we? And as I was thinking this past week about the various ways that we're guilty of this, I just sensed the Holy Spirit of God impressing upon me one specific example to use to illustrate it, and it's very personal. I've shared with you before that I grew up in a pretty legalistic church, a church that placed a lot of emphasis on the do's and the do-nots, on the shoulds, the should-nots, the oughts and the ought-nots. And so for a long time, I believed that God loved me enough to keep me out of hell, but I didn't think God liked me very much. And the reason was simple. I had no confidence in the goodness of God. And I had no confidence in many of the promises of God that he made me in the scripture. Promises like these. Hey, James, you're a son in my family and nothing can ever separate you from my love. Uh, James, all of your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. Jesus knew what he was dying for before he ever went to the cross for you, and he still laid down his life to cover all your sins. James, because you're in Jesus Christ, my son now, you are righteous and holy and blameless in my sight. And it doesn't matter what you see when you look in the mirror. I need you to know that whenever I look at you, all I see is my son Jesus covering you. James, you don't have to perform for me any longer. I love you and accept you not because of what you do or don't do, but because of what Jesus Christ, my son, has done on your behalf. Listen, because I lacked confidence in those promises, because I lacked confidence in the very goodness of God, guess what I did? I started putting confidence in me. And I decided I'm going to take it upon myself to help God out. Okay, God, I know what you've said about your character in the scripture. I know about all the promises that you've made me, um, but God, I don't know that I can trust that that's entirely true. And so God, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to clean my act up. I'm going to pursue morality. I'm going to be a better Christian. I'm going to live a better life. I'm going to do all the right religious churchy stuff. God, that's going to be my way of devising and scheming and working really hard to ensure that all your promises come to pass for me. And here's what happened due to my lack of faith. I spent years of my life living under a constant weight of guilt and shame, always wondering, am I doing enough to help? Am I doing enough to help? And at about 18 or 19 years old, I came this close to walking away from God and the church altogether. I think some of you in the room today know how that feels because that's been your story. And if that's true for you, I want to say this to you in love. So would you just look up here at me for a moment? Stop it. Like, seriously, stop trying to help God out with things he doesn't need your help with. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, all of God's promises are true for you because of him. 
You are loved. You are accepted. You are forgiven. You've been adopted. Jesus Christ has performed all the necessary work on your behalf to purchase the promises of God for your life, which means there's nothing left for you to do. Listen. I said, as long as you refuse to believe that, though, do you know what you're going to (laughs) do? You're going to make a mess of your life by trying to help God out with stuff he doesn't need you to be helping with. And that was exactly the case for Abram, wasn't it? I mean, instead of escaping Egypt unscathed, do you remember what we read just a moment ago? Pharaoh, the guy in charge of the whole thing, the guy leading the country, hears about the beauty of his wife. She must have been a knockout, right? And he decides, I'm going to take her. Like, no negotiating. I'm just going to take her. And so he goes and he takes Sarah, Sarai at this point. And in exchange for her, he gives Abraham all this earthly stuff, livestock and, and servants. And before you go, well, at least Abram got something out of it. Like, don't get carried away, right? But here's what you should know, and we'll see this in the coming weeks. The earthly stuff he received from Pharaoh caused a lot of earthly problems in his life. <laughs> Which goes to show yet again that God does not need our help in keeping his promises. Now, I want you to go back to the text with me one more time. you got to see how God responds to Abram's lack of faith. Look at verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. That word plagues there in the Hebrew simply means infection or disease. We don't know what type of infection or disease it was, but I have to imagine it was pretty awful because of what happens next in the story. God afflicts Pharaoh's house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her from my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. So they're getting kicked out of the country here. But they not only get kicked out, they get an escort from Pharaoh himself to the border, right? The Bible says Pharaoh, in verse 20, gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So here's what's happening in the text. God is delivering Abram and Sarai in spite of their lack of faith. How incredible is that? He delivers them. And he delivers them, again, by sending a series of plagues onto Pharaoh's house. I think this is heartbreaking. Earlier in Genesis chapter 12, God told Abram that all the families of the earth would be blessed because of him. Here's a family of the earth now suffering because of him. And so we might wonder, why in the world would God respond like that? I mean, why would he afflict Pharaoh and his home just to deliver a couple of faithless liars? Well, the answer is really, really simple. He made a promise. He delivered them because he made a promise, a promise to raise up a nation of people through Abram's line that would fulfill the mandate he gave humanity back in Genesis 1.28, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule and reign over the world in such a way that my kingdom and character is put on display for all the world to see. And God was so committed to keeping that promise that he refused to let Abram's lack of faith stand in his way. But here's what you have to know today, and please lean in for a moment. Don't check out on me at this point in the message. This is so critical. You have to know that God doesn't always deliver like that. He doesn't always deliver like that. Sometimes in grace, God will deliver faithless people from the consequences of their faithlessness. 
And oftentimes he does so to keep his word. But at other times he delivers faithless people over to the consequences of their faithlessness. Why? To grow them up and to mature them in their faith. All right, if you have kids in the room today, you're going to get this, all right? Uh, I have a three-year-old in my house currently who loves to do things by herself and for herself, but the problem is there's a lot she still cannot do, all right? For example, she hasn't quite figured out how to get dressed and undressed efficiently, and so if she's ever wearing a shirt that's just a little too tight, she can kind of get it up to her forehead, and then it gets stuck, and her arms are pinned back, and she's like doing a dance. And so I'll say to her, sailor, baby, let daddy help you. And she will fight with me. No, daddy, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. And so I have learned that instead of arguing with her in moments like those, that if I'll just let her struggle a bit, eventually she'll get frustrated and she'll get tired out and she'll realize I I need my daddy. And she'll come back to me and she'll say, daddy, will you help? That is why at times God is willing to deliver faithless people over to the consequences of their faithlessness. You see, when you and I are busy acting like spiritual (laughs) three-year-olds, no, 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 God, I got this, for real. I don't need you right now. I don't need your presence. I don't need your power. I don't need your strength. I don't need your promises. God, I can do this on my own. I have life completely under control. And you know what? In fact, God, I wonder at times if you have things under control. So maybe I need to be the one helping you. You see, when that's our attitude and posture toward God, at times God is willing to let us struggle a bit simply to remind us, hey, you still need me. You still need me. And can I give you the great news? God is always waiting on you just to turn to him in order to help. So I have to imagine that this is where some of you find yourselves today in life. You are stuck and you are struggling and it is due to a lack of faith. In other words, you've placed way more confidence in you than you have in him. Like maybe you're that person who's forgotten about God entirely and you've taken life into your own hands and you're just trying to make life work the best you can and it's not going so well. Or maybe you're the person in the room that's busy trying to help God out with all sorts of things that he doesn't need your help with and your life is a mess right now. Listen, if so, here's my encouragement. I'll give you one last point and then we'll be done. If that's you, my encouragement to you would be this. Forget self and remember God. Forget self and remember God. I know there's got to be some people in this room who are tired of struggling every day. Tired of feeling stuck. You're walking through life like my three-year-old with that shirt on her head and her arms pinned back. Right? And you're so tired of it. What do you do? You remember who God is that he's strong, that he's faithful, that nothing is too hard for him. You remember what he's done for you, that he gave up the life of his very own son so that you could be a loved son or daughter in his family. You remember that every single one of God's promises are yes and amen for you because of Jesus Christ. And as you remember God, you respond by forgetting self. You see, some of you in the room today, and I say this because I love you as your pastor, but some of you in the room today have to stop believing that old dead lie that you are the solution to all of life's problems because you're not. You see, oftentimes we are the problem to all of life's problems, aren't we? And some of you need to see that today. Jesus is the solution to life's problems. 
And because that's true, the invitation is really simple. Would you come and lay your life down in humility before him? Here's the great promise of the scriptures. When you do that, the God who loves you, the God who created you, who's waiting in the wings just for you to call on him for help, that God promises to meet you right where you are with exactly what you need and to grow your faith so that you become increasingly more confident in him. Look, I know, a lot easier said than done, right? This is a lot easier to preach than it is to practice. And so we need the Holy Spirit of God to come and help us. Can we just pray for that right now? Just all across the room, heads bowed, eyes closed. I'm gonna invite our prayer team to come and to get in their places. And as they do, I I would just ask, have you forgotten God? Are you walking through life on your own, trying to make things happen by yourself? Or is there an area of your life that you have yet to place in the hands of God in faith? Are you just holding on to that area? You want to be in control of that area. You haven't given it to God, trusted Him. I just want to invite you right now in this moment just to pray as the Holy Spirit leads you. And I would encourage you, be bold enough just to say to him, Holy Spirit, give me the courage and faith that I need to trust you entirely with this. And ask for his help. As many of us around the room are praying, I want to speak to another group of people as well who walked in today. And that's those of you in this room who've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You've been walking through life by yourself up until this point and you've just been trying to make things happen and you know that there are broken things and broken areas in you that you've tried to fix but nothing's worked and I would just remind you today God loves you and he gave up the life of his son for you and nothing can solve the issues in your life except for Jesus. And so if you need hope today, If you need purpose today, if you need your life to change, if you need to know confidently that you're going to spend eternity with God one day, right in your seat, why don't you just pray in faith and say something like this? Just tell him, Jesus, I need you. I desperately need you. I'm tired of struggling. I'm tired of walking through life alone. I believe that you died on the cross to pay for my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead so that I could have new life in you and eternal life with you. And so Jesus, would you forgive me today of all my sins? Take hold of my life. Be my Savior. Be my God. Be my Lord. And Jesus, would you make me into the person you've created and saved me to be? I say yes to you.